What's up? Welcome to Textual Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart. On today's podcast, I'll be interviewing Steve Gurgley. Steve is a writer and runner from Warwick, New York. His fiction has appeared in Atticus Review, Hobart, Maudlin House, and many others. In addition to writing, he also composes and has recorded five albums of original music. In this episode, we talk about 90s music, writing, Tommy Boy, Gilmore Girls, and so many other fun and weird things. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay. I want to do the Mission Impossible uh, test, the toast. Toast. Okay. That's better. Okay, we're going to definitely start the recording right now. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, what the hell is the Mission Impossible test? <laughs> um, so the Mission Impossible toast test is um, in the middle of the movie, Mission Impossible 1, uh, Tom Cruise is going to break into the CIA vault to steal the names of you know, CIA agents all over the world to sell it to someone. And they have all kinds of security measures in the CIA vault. He wants to see if the sound system has been disabled. So he has a little meter, like microphone thing on his watch. And he says like one, two, three, toast. And apparently toast is like the loudest sound that he would be making. So that's how he tests if the, uh, the vault sound system has been disabled, the alarm system. That's pretty interesting. I've never seen any of the Mission Impossible movies. I lied and said I saw one once, but that was like as a cover because I was going on a double date in high school. (laughs) Um, And apparently the guy's um, mother was very Christian and we were about to actually see Da Vinci Code. And when she found that out, she was like, oh, that's 100% like against what we do. So... (laughs) Like, we're at the theater, and we just immediately, like, looked up at what other movies they were playing, and we're like, Mission Impossible? We're going to watch that instead. And then we started asking people who actually saw the movie, please run it down for us, so he could say that to his mom. That's hilarious. Um, I'm assuming that was Mission Impossible 3? Probably. I don't even know how many Mission Impossibles there are. I think they're up to, like, six now. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah. They're getting more Mission Impossibles than there are Scream. That's disappointing. How many Screams are there? Four, but they're about to have a fifth. Oh. I don't think I've ever seen... I don't... Yeah, I've never seen any of those. I only saw a scary movie back in the 90s, which is absolutely horrendous and disgusting. Um so I've never actually seen the original Scream. I've only seen the parody on which is based or that they did of it. And yeah, that one, that one was awful. What's funny is that Scream in general is a bit of a satire about other scary movies. It's very uh, meta. Like the characters are very self-aware and they're playing by the rules of what scary movies are. I think, I think I did hear about that. Cause like uh, a, a part of that movie is like, oh, what's your favorite scary movie? And, oh, you know, never do that in a scary movie or something. They say stuff like that, don't they? Yeah, the entire, like, first three films. The fourth film, they do it, like, just, like, twice. But the other ones, 
it's like basically you have like a really film obsessed guy who's always telling them the rules and the killer always happens to be a very film obsessed guy too. <laughs> Sometimes girl. Okay. I feel like that would be an easy line of logic to connect those dots, but maybe it's a, a, a red herring. I, I, I don't want to spoil the screen movies, but. Well, the interesting thing in the original scream is you can't really narrow it down because I want to say at least six people all really love scary movies in their oh, group. Okay. Nice. And the other sense. ones, it's easier to nail it down, but yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I never got into the Scream movies or um, horror movies that have a lot of gore. I'm more kind of like on the psychological side. I like how we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. I love slasher films, psychological films. It's like they're too much for me. I think it's like because I'm a neurotic person, so... That, that'll that get, like, deep into my mind, and I'll be like, I can't trust shit anymore. I think the reason I'm not a huge fan of uh, gore is just because I get grossed out really easily. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, I, I just don't want to, like, look at gross things. I would say with Scream and most slasher films, I mean, you'll see dead bodies pop up. You'll see blood um, I think there's only one scene in Scream where you actually see somebody get gutted. I know it sounds so fucking violent to say, but um, interestingly enough, come Scream 3, that's the first one that came after Columbine, and they haven't duplicated that um, level of uh, gore ever since. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, it was a very, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's very meta. It's very aware of what's going on in society. It's kind of weird, but fun at the same time. No, I mean, that's cool. I mean, I one of my favorite shows of all time is Community. And um, that show has huge amounts of meta commentary on, like, every single genre of entertainment there is. So, I mean, that's definitely one uh, one aspect that I really really find interesting just in general in any kind of um, movie or music or, or books or anything. So, yeah, it does sound pretty interesting. Yeah, there definitely are some interesting movies and books like that. I like really analytical books that are about, like, the making of something. Do you ever get into that? Um, yeah, oh, that's one thing that's really funny because... That can be really interesting. I, whenever I um, watch or it's, it usually happens with movies. Whenever I found a, find a good movie that I really like, um, afterward, I'll always go to the Wikipedia page and look up things about it um, or IMDb for like uh, the facts and trivia and stuff. And that's always interesting to, to learn about different behind the scenes stuff and uh, different facts and, and things about um, how the movie was made, you know, about the actors, their experience, stuff like that. 
I know the one thing is IMDb kind of disappointed me when they got rid of the uh, chat area because I liked seeing other people's like theories. So now I just look stuff up on Reddit or Wikipedia. Oh, I don't think I ever, I don't remember seeing that. I remember like user generated lists where like I'd be on a movie <laughs> and it would be like, oh, the top 15 Brad Pitt movies or whatever, like, cause I'm a big Brad Pitt fan. I think he's good. <laughs> and there would just be like user lists on the side, but I don't know if I ever remember there being stuff like that on there, but yeah, that was like the height of like AOL too. So yeah. Oh, so that's, that's going way back. Oh man, dude. AOL Instant Messenger. I, that was my stuff. I, back in high school, I, that was, that was where everything went down. <laughs> That's how you like bullied people too. Like it finally got out of the classroom and then it got online and that's when shit got really intriguing. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it's more of a girl thing. I don't know if guys did it to each other. Um, no, they, they, that definitely happened. Like w- one thing that's hilarious, hilarious story is um, when I was in high school, uh, this guy, I was friends with, uh, I was on the uh, cross country and track teams with, he randomly messaged me on instant messenger from, you know, some anonymous, um, screen name that I'd never seen. And, you know, as a high school guy, anytime that someone would randomly message you, you'd always think like, Oh, what if this is that cute girl I like or whoever talking to me? Like, Oh, it's magic. It's exactly what I always wanted. So you always accept the message <laughs> and it's never that person ever. Cause that's not how the world works. And this guy, <laughs> he started talking to me and basically just trolling me on AOL Instant Messenger with the, with this hilarious uh, screen name, which was uh, Swimmer's Ear 69. <laughs> like that, that should have <laughs> been the, the cue for me to know that it was a joke. But um, yeah. I actually turned the concept of that trolling conversation that he had with me um, into a story uh, that came out last year in Misery Tourism. And um, I just think it's so hilarious that I even used the the screen name Swimmers Year 69 and uh, kept that part of it just because that screen name was so perfect and so like emblematic of that era, just people making a fake screen names and like trolling your friends or like trolling other people. And yeah, that, that, that did happen. I was just looking at your work and I found it really fascinating. And I didn't realize that the last thing you submitted to us, or I think the last thing we published was, do you like death metal? I found that fun because like, this is after you sent me a lot of your playlists and you didn't have death metal on any of the playlists. Um, there was. Which uh, one let was me it? Just call it up. Um, I sent you two playlists. One, the first one was some of Steve's favorite artists. Um, the fourth song on that playlist uh, is a song called "Excretion Text" by Nile, and that's one of my favorite death metal songs of all time. Yeah, it kind of gets buried though. By like, I'm not quite sure how to 
describe this genre, but I'd almost call it like hipster music. What all of those things that I sent you? Um, definitely with the essential albums to listen to. Oh, those those are ones that I thought that those are ones that I like that I thought you would like. Yeah, that, I definitely like it, and you you do have some in some of Steve's favorite artists. Do you? Like like with the deer hunter and stuff like that. Oh yeah, deer hunter's good. Do you have like any playlists that have like fun names, like weird ones? Um, no. I mean, I, I again, I just kind of go real minim- minimalist. And uh, while I'm at work, or when I'm going to listen to a lot of music at work every day. All I do is name the playlist after that day. Yeah, I'm looking at that now. uh, Yeah, in my Spotify, it's like 322, 421, 424, 427, um, just because I delete a lot of them afterwards. And some of them are pretty similar. Like if I'm feeling a few albums, I'll have them um, on at the beginning of the playlist for two or three days in a row. I was going to say with your playlist, it's a damn shame you didn't do one for 420. (laughs) It would have been amusing to see what you would have put for that one um the funny thing is um as much as i might write about um drugs and stuff like that i actually don't do any of them so i mean it's did you ever um i've never been drunk but i have smoked pot twice it didn't work the first time and it did work the second time and um, the second time, it it was a pretty fun experience. Um, like we were watching Groundhog Day, and I literally like. Oh, that's gotta be a trippy experience. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, when uh, Bill Murray says like, "What's uh, you can't contact the satellite? What is it snowing in space?" I literally couldn't stop laughing for ten minutes because. All of a sudden, that became the most hilarious thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a it was a good experience. Um, you know, just a life experience. I like the films that didn't mean to be terrible, but they were. But they also have a weird cult classic like vibe to them. But um, I feel the same exact way. That I, well, I can't say that. Cause, I mean, I love great movies too, but unintentionally horrendous movies are so amazingly fun to watch, and uh, they're 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 some of my favorite movies. Like um, Army of Darkness with Bruce Campbell, like the third Evil Dead movie. That that's that's specifically a parody, but everything about that movie is so amazing. <laughs> Like classic. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's it's so amazing. It's so hilarious. Like me and my brother, we would just quote that to our, to each other all the time. Like even to this day, like we'll say anything. Like I'll have him over, you know, for a holiday or whatever, and I'll be we'll be playing a video game in my room or something, and you know, it'll it'll be a Zelda game, and he'll pick up um, he'll pick up the arrows, and then he'll do like the Bruce Campbell like arrows like when they you know when they're going to shoot the arrows the skeletons but like it's just stuff that's so baked into our vernacular that it's just it's classic it's great you gotta love it when movies do that 
the one movie that I could quote like from front to back, back to front is Tommy Boy. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I th- I think that's mandatory for every person who lived in the nineties. I mean, you'd I think, thought it would but be. like, I had a friend named Richard, and oh, I would like on. just. Out of pure comedy, I was like, shut up, Richard. <laughs> and like two of my friends laughed and he just stood there like, what the fuck? And I was like, oh, that got lost. And obviously it was perceived the wrong way. Yeah, that that one's a little tough just because that's not like an emblematic. That's not like a instant classic line from that movie. I mean, he says it a number of times and it is a great line, but... If it's not prompted as being a line you're quoting, it can also work as just a thing you're saying to someone named Richard. So I can see how that one could get lost, but... um, Obviously, like, fat guy in a little coat is more (laughs) quotable. (laughs) Or, like, it's called Herbie Hancock. Gosh. (laughs) Uh, Actually, every time I go by the Hancock Building, I call it the Herbie Hancock Building. That's great. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I very few people get it, but anyone around our age gets it. Yeah, like I didn't even I don't I didn't know who Herbie Hancock was outside of that movie. Like I thought he was <laughs> just making up a name, and then when someone told me Herbie Hancock was like, what is he? Is he a jazz musician or? He was a jazz musician. Like, I didn't know that. I was just like, oh, I thought that was the name that Chris Farley made up in Tommy Boy. Like, I didn't know that that was a real thing. (laughs) That's my favorite thing about Chris Farley movies is that, like, he sneaks in some actual culture. Those are are some things that I do find really interesting when when shows or movies can do that um, or, or when they kind of go out of their way to do that. Um, I know community, um, did that a lot. I wish I could think of a good example off the top of my head, but it was just like all, again, meta, meta commentary on different genres, uh, of television entertainment and movies and stuff. And, oh, a a great one was in season two episode of community where, it was billed as the study group was going to do, was going to throw Abed a birthday party and it was a Pulp Fiction themed birthday party. But then the entire episode turned out to be a parody of my dinner with Andre instead of Pulp Fiction. (laughs) And it's just like (laughs) totally slipping. It's like everyone knows Pulp Fiction, but then they just, instead they do a parody of this like, experimental you know art film from the 80s that was just like a single two-hour conversation between two guys like that was that was really interesting that was really clever you gotta love stuff like that see i never got too into that show i was more of a parks and recreations person oh uh, yeah yeah i was the opposite i i couldn't get into parks and rec because uh aziz is a little too he's a little too much for me just the the timbre, the timbre of his voice and just, yeah. Yeah. And Chris Pratt is a little annoying. I love Amy Poehler, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. Especially when you, like, put her and Tina Fey together, which I wish was done in that TV sh- series. That would have been epic. 
she never guest starred? Like, no. Wow, that's surprising. I know, such a letdown. I feel like that would be like a like a recurring guest star that would just come ba- like Tina Fey would just come back every season and like be her nemesis or like her you know friend or something like I don't know yeah that does feel like a missed opportunity I'm trying to think of like classic cameos that people have done like I remember Brad Pitt being on Friends oh was stuff oh, like okay. that Yeah he actually was someone who hated Rachel which was hilarious <laughs> That is funny. Did you hear that they're doing the reunion soon? Um, I think I just saw news about that and about the the iCarly revival. So those are interesting oh, wow. news. That's how you know you're old because that was not a show of our generation. Yeah. Like when they're bringing back the things that like came out like 10 or 20 years before our heyday. Yeah, it's definitely... Or after our heyday. Well, again, technically, I, I personally, I'm not too embarrassed to admit that I I was a fan of iCarly. Um, but again, that was 2007, so I was uh, 20, 21. But again, I was kind of 10, 11-year-old kid inside my head, so I was right in the accurate age range for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like the 10 year mark. It's like, okay, time to reboot or time to revive. If, if there's any fans remaining, like, all right, let's do it. I feel like every time they've attempted to do a revival reunion, reboot, whatever, they've never been good. Like if you've seen like the Gilmore girls one, that was like the most annoying thing ever. Like, I think everybody got hyped to hell and then suddenly there's like four new reunion episodes and I was like, geez, this is not what I wanted. Yeah. Um, or Wet Hot American Summer, stuff like that. Yeah, I never saw that one. But yeah, in, in, in reference to the Gilmore Girls one, that was that was interesting because <laughs> it, it's like... You know, they had the famous, you know, last four words that all the all the fans wanted to hear and everything. And I guess they were working toward that the entire time, but it doesn't really work, you know, 10 years after the show goes off. Um, No spoilers, sorry. (laughs) But the one thing I think the one thing that did work in the Gilmore Girls revival uh, was Paris because she was just awesome even more awesome than usual so it's like the i think maybe it was the second episode where she had like she was in it for most of the episode or the first two episodes she was in it for most of the time that her her part she was awesome she's always awesome um the rest of it was yeah not great i mean i'm trying to remember the name of the woman who plays Paris. I think it's like Liza Liza Wheel. Yeah, what well, yeah, Wheel. Yeah. But no, she really grew as an actress. She was in How to Get Away with Murder and like she just became a pretty big badass and I think she took that personality into Gilmore Girls whereas before the like revival of Gilmore Girls, Alexis Bledel wasn't really doing anything except brief cameos on Mad Men. Yeah, yeah. And 
I would say like Handmaid's Tale came after. Yeah, but true. her character just depressed the hell out of me. So in in Handmaid's yeah. Tale or in Mad Men, Handmaid's Tale, oh. Mad Men, she was kind of sad too. Like yeah, I, I do think she was that. bipolar. Yeah, and then she disorder. like lost her memory or something, right? Yeah. I, I kept thinking that her and Pete Campbell were, like, finally going to get together. It's interesting to know that in real life they did, like, they're married to each other. Yeah, that is always interesting when it's, like, the... Especially when it's the actor and the actress whose characters in the show, they can't stand each other or, like, one person has no chance with the other. Like, um, like Charlie Day on It's Always Sunny, like, he's married to the actress who plays the waitress and, like their character you know she in the show she like can't stand him so much and like that's always interesting so when you say you're an audio engineer i have a friend who's an audio engineer and every time i talk to them i just have to like nod and pretend like (laughs) i knew what they do but what exactly is that um audio engineer it's basically you're in control of every aspect of let's say the studio recording of a band or of music. So you're the, you're going to be the one who is choosing and purchasing the audio equipment, the microphones, um, the preamps, the computer, the interface, um, the software, whether you're using pro tools or something else. Um, and then you're going to be setting up the mics you're going to be, you know, doing mic placement, you know, in the drum set, where are you setting the mics? You're going to, how are you going to, how are you going to configure the mics? Are you going to use uh, an AB overhead recording for the cymbals? Are you going to put an SM57 directly on the cymbals? Like you're doing all of, all of that stuff. And then you're the person who goes into the booth, you press record, and then you're trying to, um, you know, you're trying to get the best signal levels, maintain, you know, make sure that they're not clipping. Like my voice just was a little bit <laughs> and, um, you know, you're, you're not really working the faders in a, in a recording session. You shouldn't be kind of like playing with them, but you're kind of overseeing the recording session and making sure that the, recordings that you're getting are, you know, high professional quality. And then it could be, you know, you, you could have a separate mixing engineer who's just mixing the, all of the audio tracks for the band together. And then you can also have a mastering engineer, which is taking the single, um, stereo track, which is what the end user is going to hear. And, you know, they're, they're making adjustments to that. And that that's mostly a software based, um, you know, type of manipulation and stuff like that. And so there's, there's a lot of different aspects at play, but what I went to college for was specifically more the, the, the first steps in the, in the process, a little bit less the mixing and mastering. Well, now I could definitely not pretend to nod. When my friend talks about their job. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know one of my one of my friends, his dad kind of used to make jokes where it's like, oh, recording engineer, you know, you go into the booth and you're the guy who presses record, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, 
basically, but you know, you, you have to set the mics, you have to choose the equipment, you have to do all this stuff. And I mean, there, there is a lot of, it's art and science mixed together because, you know, there's, um, like mathematical aspects or physics based aspects of sound that you have to keep in mind. So if you're trying to record your snare drum, you have to put your mic very close to the skin of the snare drum to prevent the cymbals from bleeding into the microphone that's recording your snare drum. Because you want isolation, basically. You want that microphone is going into a mono track in your uh, software, in your Pro Tools software, and you only want the snare drum sound on that track. You want the cymbals to be on the cymbals track so you can manipulate them independently. And when you were saying that like you dabbled in composing music, what kind of music were you doing there? Um, that was that was interesting because m- like my favorite genre is kind of a based in rock, rock metal type of st- stuff like that or hardcore whatever. So my music has been, I've, I, I recorded five albums of music and it was basically a base of rock plus something else. So the first album was like rock with like, um, I, I don't know what to call it, kind of like space rock, spacey, ambient type stuff. And then... Another one was rock with jazz. Another was um, rock with like soundtrack film score type of music. Um, and then the the last one was pretty heavily influ- influenced by uh, minimalist type music like uh, Steve Reich and Philip Glass um, composers like that. Are these available to listen to anywhere? Um, yeah, all my albums are on Bandcamp. Um, it's just Steve Gurkley music. Uh, I believe I had sent you a link with my original first email, but I, I don't think I ever sent another one. Um, I mean, I could I could send it to you again if you're interested. Yeah, I'm definitely interested. I want to get a vibe for these sounds, and then oh, okay. I'll tell you my weird names for the genres. <laughs> Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's all instrumental because um, I personally, again, I don't I don't sing. I don't um, have any kind of vocal talent. I can barely speak correctly. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's all instrumental. Do you tend to like listen to more like instrumental music when you write, or do you have like, or do you need like total silence to write? Um, yeah, I go with total silence. Um, it, for me, it, it has to be total silence with earplugs, um, just because it's so incredibly difficult for me to kind of uh, get into the world of the story, to like go into my imagination into the world of the story. Um, so I really need to get deep into silence and to get there. Cause it's just, it's really tough to conjure up, um, that stuff. And I mean that sadly, that's a little bit of a result, um, of my lifestyle. So it, it does get pretty difficult to, to get 
deep into the imagination, so I do have to have um, full silence for that. I was going to say, is there any, like, specific, like, conduit you use to get there? Um, like, in the right headspace? It sounded like you said condiment for a second. I was like, um, <laughs> fan of hot sauce now. Um, <laughs> no, conduit. Yeah, conduit. Um, I, or do you just need to almost, like, just blank out and almost meditate, or...? I mean, I have tried doing that. But the, honestly, the thing that I found is just the thing that has helped me the most actually is has has been bad in the past also. So kind of have to I kind of have to be careful with it because it's just grinding day after day after day. So like I could I could sit there for two hours and get absolutely nothing done and I can get really like angry or frustrated and I just know that the next day I'm going to be back in the same place trying to do the same thing uh just grinding again and it's just like man can we please get some work done today like can we do something like and and it's just kind of like forcing myself to do that using that frustration like um, a lot, a lot of the time it just feels like there's the, the angry Alec Baldwin from Glengarry Glen Ross in my head where he's just saying like, you know, always be, was it always be closing, always be writing, always be writing. You can't write shit. You are shit. Then hit the bricks, pal. <laughs> Cause you're going out. Like, it's just like angry Alec Baldwin yelling at me. See, my but, theory is like, you can't like force it, you know? Or it's not going to come out like the best. But I guess some people do need to force themselves. Yeah, that's the thing, because it, it definitely doesn't come out in a good state. It just takes the next step is taking a huge amount of work to shape it into something that's not terrible. Um, and, and, and I mean, that's where it can get me into trouble because that that's where burnout can set in, because it's not always the like get, getting the new ideas is definitely difficult but knowing how much work it's going to take to take a new idea to the point of it being something that someone might possibly have a chance of liking a tiny bit just knowing how much work it takes to get there can be like oh my god i can't do this <laughs> It's just like, oh man. So like, yeah, sometimes that, that burnout can, you know, get me into trouble. I'm sorry, <laughs> get me into trouble. I was going to say like, there's that one Ernest Hemingway quote, uh, the first draft of anything is shit. So yeah. Oh, that definitely applies to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Same here. Definitely same here. Same boat. <laughs> But no, I do it where, like, I'll put my headphones on and I'll listen to Spotify and I'll just kind of, like, jam out for, like, 30 minutes and kind of then, like, act out, which is really weird because it's kind of like me talking to myself, like, what I'm going to write. But, yeah, that's kind of how I get out of my own identity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because none of my writing, except for my poetry, has anything to do with me. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that sounds like a good idea. 
Yeah. Or if I have to force it, there's um, one app. But if you're someone who like can't stand the anxiety, I'm learning a lot of people can't. And it's funny because I'm a weird, anxious person. There's a tool called uh, the Most Dangerous Writing App. Yeah, I remember you talking about it on an earlier episode. Yeah, I recommend it to everybody because one of my writer friends like recommended it to me and I was like, this is not going to work. But then it did work and I was like, God damn. It's basically just like helps you create the first draft or like gets the shitty ideas out of your head. But yeah, like what happens is, well, you already heard the thing. It deletes it after how many seconds if you're not typing? I want to say two seconds. Oh, wow. So, like, if you suddenly pause. It doesn't even give you a chance. Wow. (laughs) No. Like, you just have to keep typing. And the shortest um, time you could do is, like, five minutes. So, for, like, five minutes, you cannot stop writing. But, yeah, it definitely gets rid of, like, the cobwebs or the stupid ideas and stuff like that. That, see, no, that, that... When I had been... When I heard you talk about that the original time, I had... I had thought that that would be a terrible idea and something that would never work. But like, I almost used to do that on my own um, early in my days of writing because early in my days of writing, I used to, um, I for some reason, I went straight to writing novels. So I wrote like six full-length novels and two novellas um, from like 2014 to 2017. Uh, and then I trans- and then I switched over to short stories. And during those times, I was li- I was just like churning out those books. And the way that I did that was, um, I would you know I have a two hour writing session every single day, and I would give myself a word count that I have to get to by the end of two hours. So it's usually like usually 750 words per day it was. So I would literally sit down, oh, what what's the word count for this document? Oh, it's 8206. Go to the calculator, add 750. Okay, that's the number I have to get to. And I would do that every single day. And that did, I, th- I mean, I think it, I, maybe it did help because it definitely helped me complete those books at like at a at a speed that's pretty incredible to me thinking about that now but it's kind of like what Stephen King does where he says like write a thousand di- uh, words per day I might have gotten it from him I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I might have seen that somewhere and be like hey it's a good idea um, I think we all do that like we kind of subconsciously steal from other writers <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not really stealing. That's just a that's just a piece of advice. Yeah, I was gonna say like if they're saying that, then it's like, all right, I could try it. Then again, a lot of Stephen King books suck, so that obviously doesn't work for him all the time. <laughs> that's what I was gonna say. The only drawback of those books is that every single one of those novels that I wrote are absolutely horrendous and terrible. And the only way that system works is if you rush through the first draft and then you you go back and then you can do significant significant editing basically rewrite the entire book again once you have kind of like a skeleton in place and i think i mean back then i didn't have the the patience for that i don't know if i would have that now but 
Yeah, that's that's the only thing because it is kind of just like churning out like garbage for, just for the sake of being productive, which um, is something I don't really want to do or something I want to avoid, like not writing bad stuff. For me, it's one of those I know that majority of the time I'm going to write bad stuff. So it's like I just want to get it out of the way. Uh, yeah. I have a weird mentality. I'm very critical of myself. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, me too. I'm, I understand that. I mean, that's a, so, that's a good mindset to have though, because it, if you just have it where it's not, where you know in your mind that it's something that you're never going to submit or that no one's going to see, and it's just whatever bad writing is only existing solely for the purpose of getting to something that would be better then yeah, I mean, if that works, that that's probably a good strategy. I mean, I, I think most people need to understand that because I also get a lot of submissions where it, it definitely looks like it was just like the first draft of something that someone wrote. Yeah. And I, I, I think more people need to be a little more critical of themselves. I mean, it's cool that people are like free-flowing with their creativity and everything, but... I think a second glance occasionally is good. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, self-editing, without a doubt, is, yeah, yeah. essential. Um, or at least, like, run it through Grammarly. Yeah. Oh, oh, I mean, like, not even proofread or not even... Yeah, sometimes oh, wow, you have yeah. that. And also you just have some, like, inconsistencies or you're like, I'm not quite sure what you're going for, stuff oh, okay. like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I can say, yeah, definitely don't do that. But, you know, I did that in the past, so I can't pass judgment on anyone. But I, w I would recommend that, that, you know, exercise more self-editing uh, <laughs> for anyone out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, sounds shitty to say it, but it's like you have to tell it sometimes out loud to people. Yeah. Um yeah, it, it it it's another thing that's that's tough a tough balance to strike because unfortunately if you send the same piece out for um like a critique to four different people they're probably going to give you four different responses of what to do like what to change and everything so there is this aspect where you have to kind of stay true to what you want the story to be but you also have to be open to what other people, um, what other readers, you know, are what feedback they're giving you and everything. Um, one thing that has helped me in that case is like a common denominator. When if I send out a piece and it gets rejected by a bunch of editors, but a few of them have given me um, feedback on it. I try to put, I try to pay attention to the thing the the things they say that are in common. Where if three people point out one thing, okay, that's something I should probably take a look at. But if one person points out this and one person points out that, and another per person points out something else, then I can kind of pick and choose what I want to focus on. Um, mm -hmm. But if you know multiple people say like, oh, you need to uh, take a look at this and see if that's you know, see if that is as clear as you think it is, or that needs to be clarified, then 
the, the whatever the majority focuses on usually is a good uh, indicator of something that needs work. Definitely, definitely, definitely. But what would you like to read for us today? Um, let me see what we've got. I'll read a short one. So this story is called On Location. A month after I divorced my fourth husband, I earned, a, I earned the lead role in a gender swap remake of a wilderness survival film from the late 90s. For 45 days, we shot on location in Alaska alongside a 1,500-pound Kodiak bear. It was a miserable shoot. We spent the majority of each endless day tramping through dense forests of spruce and pine, shambling over frozen, frozen outcroppings of sharp rocks, and plunging into Arctic water so cold it numbed the skin on contact. Copying Oliver Stone's method from Platoon, our director deepened the emotional desolation of our performances by shooting the film in the sequential order of the story and then sending each actor back to LA immediately after their character died on camera. By the beginning of the fourth week of the shoot, me and Larry too were the only two actors remaining on set. Because of my divorce, Larry's overprotective handlers and the grueling dif difficulty of the first half of the shoot, I hadn't paid Larry much mind up until then. But once me and Larry started filming our scenes together, I was mesmerized by the graceful control of his body, his mastery of the craft of acting, and the breathtaking emotional nuance of his performance. Since our characters were on the opposite sides of the survival equation, as the director described it, he didn't allow me and Larry to fraternize off camera, but I couldn't help myself. Something raw and hungry and primal had awakened inside me, and only Larry could satiate my need. Later that week, the midnight sun, oh sorry, later that week, as the midnight sun hung low and dim in the pale pink sky, I snuck through the window of Larry's trailer. He was already awake. His big, beautiful eyes stared at me the whole time, as if he knew I would come. I stared back at him. The woody musk of his body filled the chilly air. Stepping into a dull blade of light, I drew a deep breath and peeled the clothes from my body. Larry's hot breath warmed my skin as he kissed my collarbone, my neck, the corners of my lips. Soon all the words I'd wanted to say for the past week came tumbling out of me. He took them in, swallowed them as if they were nourishment. But he wanted more, so I gave him everything. I leaned my head back and offered myself to him. For a moment he paused, as if unsure of what to do. Then he eased me to the ground. He opened his massive mouth. He wrapped his jaws around my neck and gently started to squeeze. The end. Thank you for listening. That was Steve Gergley. If you are interested in checking out some of his writing, you could check out his website, stevegurgleyauthor.wordpress.com or follow him on Twitter at GurgleySteve. As always, if you want to get to know us more, find Textual Healing on Twitter at PodHealing and take a look at our website, TextualPodcast.com. If you want to be extra supportive, take a look at our Patreon where you can help support Textual Healing and get some behind-the-scenes content to access it. Uh, the link is on our Twitter page. We are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Please leave us a rating and review. Check out past episodes and keep a lookout for new ones. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Mm -hmm.